Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. And here we go. Hey, my name is Robert. I am alcoholic. It's really good to be here. Um, I like this club. It uh, reminds me so much of where I got sober in Las Vegas at a club that's no longer uh, around called The Turning Point. And, uh, and just a nice group of people where you can come and automatically feel at home. You know, some places that you go to, it's they're a little bit more sterile than others, you know, but certain clubs, they just have so much history. It's almost like the, the people who have gotten sober here have left their lives here. And, and, and there's an immediate identification. So when I see Michael and I see Robert, you know, as newcomers, I don't know if you've been a newcomer before. All I know is you're a newcomer now. And, and I think as a person who did relapse, I think coming to that understanding that our last drink really could be our last drink. And, and the fact that we never have to leave these rooms, even when we're not here, we can still have these rooms with us. Um, I think sobriety is one of those things, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's why I still love hearing reading. You know, every time I sit down and I hear how it works or the preamble, you know, that Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope. If that's all you ever told me, I would have probably stayed because back then you know when we first come in I wasn't sure I was alcoholic right but they told me to stick around because I would do till one showed up right which is still which is still very humorous to me um, but what I knew I was I was fellowship starved you know that loneliness you know Bill called it incomprehensible demoralization and, and we're so isolated and we're so alone, for me anyway, and, and many people that I've known along the way, everyone who was near and dear to us, they'd either already gone or they're on their way out the door, right? And, and, and people stopped believing us because we were unbelievable. Everything that we wanted to be, we knew we couldn't be, and yet we still expressed the desire to be that. We were, we were walking hypocrisy. And, and the degree of loneliness and despair that we feel as people coming into recovery is like no other, you know, and, and I'm sure that we can all relate to that, you know, and, and that's why I love in even chapter two, there is a solution, right? Because we were without a solution out there when we were ripping and running, you know, and, and today, um, my sobriety date is April 25th, 1986. And, and, and so it's been like 34 plus years. What's even more badass is that it's 12,531 days, which is pretty amazing, right? Because we're, we're a people, Troy, remember, we would swear off the night before and by noon the next day, we were drunk, right? We couldn't last an afternoon, let alone a day. And so to come into these rooms and go from that, that state of helplessness and hopelessness, right? That hopeless, that, 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 uh, state, that, that, that hopeless state of mind and body that they talk about in the forward to the first uh, edition that we recover from. And by the way, that's precisely, and they even italicize it, 
precisely why they wrote the book. So if we want to know precisely how to get clean and sober and never go back out and celebrate the rest of our life and die like my sponsor at 44 years, alcohol-free, it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will tell you this, that if you don't become a student of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can argue all day long and I'll still be correct, if you don't become a student of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll either relapse or you'll never realize the life you could realize if you understood this book. Because it really is. It's, it's, a, it's a blueprint for living. Because the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I understand it, as it was explained to me by the men and women who were there before me, is not a program designed how to teach you and me how not to drink or use. We know how not to do that. We can't do it, but we know how not to. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a program designed to teach me how to have a relationship with God as I understand God, that as a result of that relationship, I won't want to drink or use again, period. And that's why the, when people say there's a spiritual side of AA, I think, no, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program. That's why steps two, steps three, four, five, six, seven, 10, 11, and 12 all deal with the relationship between me and a power greater than me, right? And, and, and as soon as we can, the sooner we can understand that, the sooner we will, dare say it, become well, as it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we do recover, we can recover, right? What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditioning, right? And then after that admonition, after that understanding, the big book says, then find out what God's vision for you is and then go do it, right? And so everywhere around us, there is that sense of a higher power. You know, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, right? You know, because we have to have something concrete. Because if not, we will relapse like I relapsed. We have to gravitate to things that are real. And again, even if you're not a, a newcomer, if you're new or relatively new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, get a sponsor. Go to meetings. Share in a way that you never thought you could share, but we have to share. Because if we keep all these things inside us, we will relapse. Because pain doesn't go away, it just sort of resets itself in another area where it becomes painful over a period of time that, again, we medicate. Because that's what we do. We medicate. And, and for me, even as a child, uh, you know, when we go and we do our steps and we take our inventory, especially in step number four, and we just sort of find out how did we get here, right? Because we're not bad people trying to get better. We're sick people trying to get well. So what happened to me along the way? It wasn't that I didn't care as much as the next person. It didn't mean that I didn't want to be loved as much as the next person or didn't have the capacity to love. But somewhere along the line, I lost my way emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. And, and that knowing that you're lost and you can't be found is so painful that you have to medicate. I love Father Martin in Chalk Talk where he says it's, it's a natural human response to seek for relief from that which is uncomfortable. So if we have a headache, we take an aspirin. If it's cold, we put on a jacket. If it's too warm, we take off the jacket. If it's raining, we have an umbrella. So it makes natural sense for us to say, I'm hurting, I think I'll relieve the hurt. But for you and me, the one substance we found along the way was king alcohol. And in the beginning, it would work. I remember 
when I was um, 14 years old was the first time I ever drank. And I remember it was the summer and my parents were already passed out and Dean and Johnny down the street and Tim from across the street. We all sort of sat around, sat underneath my tree in my front yard. And so everyone got a little bit of their parents' booze because all of our parents were drunks, right? And so, so we sat under the tree and, and we, we drank because we were getting away with something, right? We wanted to do what the big people did and so we sat and we got drunk. So it was out of curiosity and rebellion more than anything else, but every subsequent time that I got drunk up until I got sober when I was 32 years old, so another 18 years, every time I got drunk was to try to recapture the feeling I had the first time I got drunk. Because when you think you're a nothing and you've come from nothing and it means you're always gonna be a nothing. But when I drank, I became what I called an almost. And when you come from nothing and you are nothing and you're always gonna be a nothing, being an almost is really pretty good. And so that's what I tried to strive for when I drank. Unfortunately, because of this thing called tolerance, it began to take me more and more and more to achieve the same effect that I did yesterday. That's essentially the definition of tolerance. Having to do more today than I did yesterday to achieve the same effect, right? And so it doesn't take long when you're 14 years old to start finding distractions in life, right? Because we have this thing called school and family and all these other things. So we have to start finding ways because we have to feel like an almost. We, we knew we didn't have to be in nothing anymore, right? We knew we could always, we could be an almost. So I started to find creative ways to be that almost. But after a time, after a period of time, it took too much and became a distraction. I was so alcoholic that on January 3rd, uh, 1972, I was up in Corvallis, Oregon. My family had moved from Southern California to Oregon and I was going to Corvallis High School it as proud as proud can be, as only an alcoholic can be, right? I'll show you, I'll kill me, right? And, and I'm proud of it. And, and so I walk into the registrar's office, and I told him I was dropping out of high school. Mind you, it's January. I could do nothing and graduate in May. But no, right? I have to prove my own authority over my life. Because in my mind, 18 years old, was that, was that gateway, was that opportunity for me to destroy my own life. I didn't need anybody else anymore. I could do it perfectly fine by myself, right? That's not what I would say to myself, right? But that's essentially what it, what it turned out to be. So I walked into the register's office and I said, I'm dropping out of high school. And she said, you can't do that. And I popped down my license. I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old. And the defiance was there so I could go drink. Because when you're 18 years old, even Bill says, uh, who likes to admit defeat? You know, practically no one. You know, so I could either say, I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm going to go do this because I want to drink because I'm an alcoholic. And so the really excuses began to take place. And my drinking became worse and worse and worse. And I didn't know what a geographic was until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I realized, wow, this is what I was doing. There's actually a word for it. I thought I invented it. And between, between relationships, jobs, the Air Force, marriage, 
having children, all those things that I thought I needed to fix me, none of them worked. And the whole time, my drinking became worse and worse and worse to where the last five years of my drinking, I didn't know a sober moment. I didn't know what chronic was until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and found out I was a chronic alcoholic. In 1982, I was diagnosed by Nevada uh, Health Services as compulsive, addictive and compulsive disorder, and the psychiatrist's prognosis was I would never get better. You know? And when you're told that in the middle of despair, it's like, well, I know I'm not going to get better. You know, I didn't really need you to tell me, so it gave me another reason to go get drunk, because who is he telling me something I already know? But that's how we think. That's how I thought anyway. And so I get clean and sober in 1986 because I was going to die. Anybody remember that? Do you, do, you, do you feel that moment of clarity? You know, everyone in my family that I had disappointed between, at this time, they were wives and children. And, and I had six brothers and sisters and my mom and dad and everyone else around me no longer knew what to do with me. And so they left me alone because they thought it would be better to watch me die from afar than be close when I killed myself. And so I was working at the Las Vegas Hilton and, and making pretty good money back in those days. And, and I had lost my job and I went to Davies Locker, if you're familiar with Las Vegas at all, over, off of DI in Maryland Parkway, there's this little place called Davies Locker and uh, they served you free drinks while you gambled. And so I lost another $1,000 and I ended up waking up in my mom and dad's apartment and they were gone and I looked in the mirror and I would hear voices and they weren't unknown voices, they were voices of family members. Do you ever, do you ever remember those? Did you ever have those? Because of the amount of disappointment that lives in us, we can hear them talking and they're always saying things like, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? How come you're doing this? How come you're doing that? And it was like, like a choir lived in my head. And the, and the voices wouldn't stop until I had just the right amount of alcohol. And by this time, I was, I was consuming large amounts of drugs. Because I had to figure it out. This is how good of a thinker I was. So I hated remorse. Anybody in this room like remorse? Not me, right? Who likes to wake up the next day and realize who you really are? And so I realized that if I could find the right combination of methamphetamine and do that, I could cut my remorse down to two, maybe three times a week, which made perfectly good sense at the time, right? So I become this meth addict, you know, and, and I became so bad. Talk about cross-addiction, little sidebar here. I actually went to Gamblers Anonymous before I ever came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Here's my theory, right? I have a theory for everything. And so, because I'm living in Las Vegas, so I'm gambling and drinking my entire life away. So I thought, well, if I could stop gambling, maybe I could reduce my alcohol and my life won't fall apart as quickly as it had been. So I started going to Gamblers Anonymous, so I had to start staying away from the casinos and things like that and, and going to lunch at, at bars where they had uh, tabletop lunch and blackjack machines, right? So I started going there, and then I realized that I started drinking more at home. I was going home for lunch, right, and, and drinking there. And my, 
my consensus was that Gamblers Anonymous didn't work, and so I would just go back and, and uh, live, this, live this particular life. And again, at the time, it made, it made perfect sense. So, so here I am, standing in front of the mirror, and normally, again, I would be hearing these voices, wondering what I was doing, when I was going to get my life right. And for the first time that I could remember, the room was quiet. And I looked in the mirror, and I didn't hear the voices, and that sense of loneliness and despair scared me because I saw myself dead. Have you ever seen yourself as dead? And, and it wasn't that I wanted to die, I just, I didn't know how to live. That's one of the most amazing cliches I've ever heard in this program. We don't want to die, we just don't know how to live. And here I was standing in front of this mirror, dead. And I didn't know what to do. It scared me so much that I walked out to the dining room area of my parents' apartment, and I picked up the yellow pages, and I looked under alcoholism. Prior to that moment, I wouldn't have admitted that I was an alcoholic if you bribed me. Because once you admit you're something, now you're responsible to do something about it. And I couldn't. And so here I am looking under alcoholism. And, and, and I didn't even, it wasn't even a real thought. It was just something I had to go do. And I started calling treatment centers. And of course, even back in 1986, this was February 19th of 1986, and even back then, you know, you needed some insurance, some money, something like that, even though they had better programs, or seem to in Las Vegas anyway, than they do now. And, but I finally came across the Nevada Treatment Center. And I said, look, here's who I am. I'm an alcoholic, and I need help, and I don't know what to do. So they didn't even ask me if I had insurance. They said, can you get here in the next hour with $50? I said, well, Sure. I mean, any good alcoholic can get 50 bucks. I was broke, right? But I knew I could get $50. And so I called my dad, who had pretty much given up by this time. My dad was alcoholic, and he was actually sober for nine years at, at this point. And so my, uh, my dad, I called him up, and, and I said, Dad, here's the deal. Nevada Treatment Center said, if I can get a ride over to there, because at this point I'd lost, I'd, I'd actually sold my 1964 Cadillac to, to a, a dealership in Las Vegas for $100 so I could go over to the California Club and gamble. That was me. So I didn't have a car, didn't have $50, and I called my dad and said, Dad, if, if you can get me there, they'll take me, is what they said. So my dad came right over, gave me $50, and I got there, and I, and I detoxed there for the next seven days, and for the first time since I was probably 18 years old, I had been sober for a week. And it was an unusual, I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know what to do with these things. Fortunately, Nevada Treatment Center had a, had a good uh, physician, Doc Irv, who was actually alcoholic as well, and came there and administered medications and vitamin B12 and everything like that and looked over us detoxing to make sure we didn't go into convulsions and DTs, that sort of thing, and he would gauge our, our physical response to not drinking. 
And then we would have meetings upstairs, and I first got introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, February 19th of 1986, and I started going to meetings. And you know, I walked into the turning point in Las Vegas, and, and it was very similar to the downstairs here. It wasn't nearly as large of a club, but you walked in and there was a coffee bar and a couple pool tables and video games, very, very similar setup, and it's one of the reasons I like this, uh, this, this club so much. And I walked in there, and all of these people, they were sober. And they were acting like I would want to act if I had this life. And, and that's where my fellowship began with this program. You know, unfortunately for me, I wasn't willing to be honest. And that's why I really appreciate when we read how it works, right? if you have the capacity to be honest. Even those who, are, who have mental disorders, right? If they have the capacity to, to be honest, uh, then we can get well, we can recover. And so I started making relationships with these people. And they had fellowship in the front and then meetings in the back. And, and I started going to meetings because that's what we do, right? We start going to meetings and we start learning the lingo, right? They certainly keep coming back at works, you know, keep it simple, sweetheart, one day at a time, all the cliches and everything that we learn along the way. And we start reciting them. And, and, and once again, I'm playing the same game I was playing. I just wasn't drinking, right? But I wasn't letting you know who I was. I was superficial because we do some things that we're so ashamed of I don't want you to know the kind of adulterer I was. I don't want you to know that I walked out on my children as they're crying for me to stay. I don't want you to know that I would steal from my mom's purse. I don't want you to know the places that I went and how I would do drugs and bathrooms and, and roll people that I thought were passed out and all the things that, that I did along the way to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was convinced in my in my fearful state, I was convinced that if you knew everything about me, I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask to not come back. And that's humorous now because we led into some pretty, pretty desperate people, right? I thought I had a bad story. I heard some, I heard some of yours and I'm not nearly that sick. <laughs> Actually, I am. Uh, but you know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? We, we don't want to disclose because we're so afraid from being judged because I never fit in anywhere. I always would go to functions and, and whether there was alcohol there or not, I always had to get pretty, good, pretty well lit before I got there because I, I couldn't let you see who, who I thought I was, which was a nothing. So I had to become an almost before I could get there, Gordon just so I would have a sense of comfortableness, right? And so I was the same way in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that worked. I want you to know it worked right up until I relapsed. Right? It stopped working then. And fortunately for me, and I am a very fortunate person, fortunately for me, I only had to be out there for five days. And I tried to recapture that feeling. I remember my dad, he found out the first day that I was drinking, because I called him and he knew, 
And he said, I said, can I come and spend the night? And he said, no. Your mom and I, we're not going to watch you die. He said, here's what I'll do. I'll take you to a motel. I'll pay for one week. I'll give you $20. And that's all I'm going to do for you. So you may be familiar with, with Las Vegas, but on 15th and Fremont, it's not there anymore. It was called the Rhett Butler Motel. And it's the kind of place that has cockroaches and you're not sure if you brought them or they were there waiting for you, right? It was that kind of, that kind of place. And catty corner from it, conveniently enough, was a place called the Sundowner Saloon. Just a little dive bar. 15 in Fremont, if you're familiar at all with Las Vegas. So my dad dropped me off and, and I saw the despair in my dad. My dad was bigger than me. Massive shoulders. And, and as my dad was dropping off, I turned to say goodbye. And I could, even from his back, I could see him crying. Because his shoulders were shaking. And he would tell me afterwards, he thought that was the last time he was going to see me alive. Imagine that as a father. Dropping your child off and giving them up for dead. But that's how he saw me. Because that's the image I gave him to see. So here I am at the Rhett Butler Motel trying to do what I had been doing since I was 14 years old. Trying to recapture that feeling of being an almost. If AA will do anything for you, it will screw up your drinking. Because I knew I, I, I was afraid that you would see me for the scared person I was. But I knew drinking wasn't doing anything for me. So I spent everything I had for the next five days, did some panhandling to get some extra money. And, and if you want a little bit of fate, I go into the Sundowner Saloon the day before I would go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. This was uh, April 24th of 1986. And I go in there and with what little money I had left, I thought, I'm going to order a shot of whiskey, because I was a whiskey beer guy, right? You didn't need to mix it. I, I wasn't drinking it for the taste. You know, um, the doctor's opinion says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That was me. I was just about the effect. And so, but I went over to the Sundowner Saloon, and there was a shift change going on, so I was trying to get the attention of the bartender. And so when I got his attention, he turned around, and it was a guy named Bill that I knew from AA. So here I was ordering this shot of whiskey from this guy I knew from Alcoholics Anonymous, and he never skipped a beat. He just did his job, and, and, uh, and he looked at me and he said, if you're lucky, there will be a tomorrow. And I, of course, drank the drink because I'm an alcoholic. And I walked back to my hotel room and I stayed up all night because I was hoping there would be a tomorrow. And later that afternoon, I walked back to the turning point and the late lunch bunch was a 12.30 meeting, was there. And as soon as that meeting was over, because I was too embarrassed to go to the meeting, and, and as God would divine, my sponsor Max was there after the meeting, just sort of hanging out. And I went back and I saw Max and uh, he didn't ask me where I was. He knew what, where I was and what I was doing. And uh, so he said, are you ready? I said, well, yeah, Max, I, I, I really need this thing. He said, no, are, are you ready? 
I said, Max, what else do I have to say to you to tell you how much I need this? And he said, you know what, Bob? He said, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a program for people who need it. It's a program for people who want it. And if you really want this thing, then you're going to get on your knees with me right now. We're going to say the third step prayer, and you and I are going to get into a program of recovery. If you want to do that, I'll be your sponsor. If you can't do that, we'll just be friends. What do you want to do? And I had no choice. I was out of options. Alcoholics Anonymous was the last house on the block for me. There was nowhere to go. I was homeless at this time. I couldn't live with alcohol, and I wasn't even sure if I could live without it. But I knew I stood a better chance because I knew more people in AA living productive, sober lives than I did people who were alcoholic like me and practicing. So for me, at that moment, in that moment of clarity, it was, it was an easy choice for me. I said, Max, whatever you say, I will do because I don't want to die. And that was the beginning, April 25th, 1986, of my journey to recovery. And I'm so grateful for the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, and I hope so much you have that deep emotional love for AA. Because AA has given me everything back. Everything. My dad, before he passed away, we became the friends I always wanted us to be before um, when, when we were both drinking and when he got sober and I was still drinking. Everything was restored between my mom and me. She just passed away in May, so I had 34 years with her of restoration. Um, my two oldest girls that I walked out on, I had dinner when I was in Las Vegas this last week. I had dinner with one of them on Monday night, and the other daughter I visited because she has two, two of my grandsons, right? So restoration everywhere you go. So if you're relatively new to the program, and if you're wondering whether or not you can have your life back, it is unbelievable what is not only restored to us right if we are painstaking about this phase of our development we will be amazed before we are halfway through and I hope to God I'm 66 years old I hope to God I'm at least halfway through right um, I would like to live forever um, but for however long I live I want to be like my sponsor Jack who died a year ago January of cancer and 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 Jack was 44 years sober and, and just a giant of a man. I, I picked him up as a sponsor after Max moved to Indiana about nine months into my sobriety. And, and, and Jack, and, and it's what we do, we carry the message, right? That's step 12, that's our mandate. You know, 10, 11, and 12 for me as a person who has recovered, I, I clean house on a daily basis. My sponsor will, my dear friend will, he says if we, if we clear away the wreckage of our present, it doesn't become the wreckage of our past, right? That's pretty profound. I like that. So that's step 10 for me. And then in step 11, I sought through prayer and meditation. It's that God thing to improve my conscious contact with God as we understood God praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And what's the will for God? As it says in the big book after a daily reprieve is to go find somebody else and help them because that becomes our spiritual mandate right and so that's what we do in, in in Alcoholics Anonymous all the way through and carrying the message of AA is the most important thing that we can do and what's really nice is no matter where we're at in the program we have a message you know I do a lot of work with treatment centers and I do zoom meetings nowadays because of COVID and things like that 
And I try to help people understand that no matter where you are in your personal recovery, you have value. We don't have to wait till we get our one-year chip. We don't have to wait till we become a speaker. We don't have to wait until something miraculous happens in our life. You know, as I was telling Troy earlier, we're involved in a miracle. You know, again, we are people who can't stay sober for a morning. And if you've been sober seven days, eight days, nine days, ten days, for most of us, it has been years since we were ever that. And to do anything but celebrate that is to do an injustice to God who is doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So we come into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of the hardest things for me to do was to be openly honest with you. Today, I'm probably more transparent than I need to be, and, but, but I'm okay with that, because I found out we're only as sick as our secrets, right? And so I need to get rid of those, and we do those through the steps. So when I, when I come in and I do the steps, and I, and, I, and I admit my powerlessness over alcohol, and how unmanageable my life has become, if I needed no more convincing of my condition, it's just to look at a little bit of my life. I don't have to do a, a, a microscopic look until I get to step four, right? But in step one, and understand that I have to do that, no matter how deep I do it, I have to do it to perfection. My, my friend Pete the Greek told me that step one is the only step we have to do to perfection. I can make a mistake, a mistake in steps two through 12, but if I ever think that I'm not powerless over alcohol and understand the degree of unmanageability in my life, I stand the chance of relapse. And here's the thing about how, how on one side it's really good to be me at, at, at my length of sobriety, just like many in this room who've got some good time. The dangerous thing is understanding that alcohol is a progressive disease. And a progressive disease means, and if this doesn't scare you, I don't stay sober out of fear, but a little bit of truth every now and then motivates me quite a lot. So the, the, the idea that alcoholism is a progressive disease, I don't start drinking from where I left off. I start drinking where I would be if I never stopped. Think about that. Let that sink in. That's why we see people with prolonged sobriety, if they relapse, in a relatively short period of time, they go down the hill, and next thing you know, we find out they're dead. That's been my experience. I don't know what yours has been, but that's been my experience. Because it's a progressive disease. And again, it says in more about alcoholism, over any considerable time, things get worse. Never, never better. Never is one of those words that's called an absolute. An absolute means that it's never is never. It means that there's not a time when it doesn't get worse. It always gets worse. And so understanding that, it's so important for me to understand the depth of my powerlessness. And later on in my sobriety, I'll learn even more how powerless I am as I begin to look at my need to be restored to sanity. Or step three of how important it is for me to have a relationship with God. And, and, and don't get caught up on that step because we're only making a decision. We're not even doing anything yet. It's not an action step. It says we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. I haven't done it yet, but I'm progressing in that way. You know, and then I get to step four, 
Step four will separate the men from the boys or the ladies from the girls because that's where truth really shows itself. Because now I need to look at every area of my life from sexual dysfunction to mental disorders to every area that my alcoholism affected. And once we do that, and along the way, if you haven't done it already, please, please, please find a relationship with a sponsor, someone that you can trust. Because when we have that person we can trust with our life, because we're about to share our life with them, the doors open to our sobriety. There's nothing keeping me at this point because everything I was afraid that you knew, you now know. And you still care for me. And I was so afraid that you would reject me and to find out that you not only embraced me, but you began to tell me how important I was. And God, as I understood God, started to reveal to me how important I could be to other people. And when you live that isolated life as long as we live it, to find out not only do you care for me, but I know now how to care for others. One of the most incredible things that Max taught me along the way, he said, what we really have, more than an alcohol problem, are you ready for this? A love disorder. And, I, and after 34 years of hearing it, I'm still trying to understand what that really means. Really trying to dissolve it and, and, and unpack it and make it mine. But here's the basic theory behind it. We grow up not knowing how to receive love. No matter how it's given, because, you know, we, we come from so many different parts of life. Some of us are brought up very poor in alcoholic backgrounds, alcoholic families, codependent families. Others are brought up in a nice environment. Mom and dad aren't addicted. The home overall seems very, very stable. And yet we all come in as twisted as the next person with social and emotional disorders that drive us to drink, period. That's, that's my understanding. And so I don't know how to receive love, no matter how it's given or who's giving it to me. But then when I come across, and that's why I really think most people begin to develop a problem with alcohol right, out, right after puberty. Right after there's this, there's this, this transition from uh, adolescence to early teens, which is essentially early adulthood. And now there's a sense of responsibility. Everything that I was supposed to learn how to receive, now I need to reciprocate. But how just like how can you how can you give something you haven't got right it was the same thing how can i share a feeling an emotion if i never learned how to receive it and and max taught me that and and again over these years i'm still trying to fully understand what it means but i know that between the program of alcoholics anonymous my sponsor now will God, as a loving God, as he would express himself in our group conscious, everything about me is coming back into play. And I learn how to do those things, especially in step five, because I, I, I remove myself from the guilt. And then I'm entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character and the shortcomings that are revealed in six and seven. If you don't know what a defect of character is or a shortcoming, just do step four.
right? And, 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 and all those things will be graphically revealed, at least they were to me. You know, and, and, and then even working through the steps, and I talk about the steps so much because it's the guideline. You know, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery, right? And then it lists the 12 steps. And do you know, you know, and, and I like that, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We remember we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us, right? So do you know what the only alternative, because there is an alternative suggestion. Do you know what it is? Go try some controlled drinking. That's the alternative suggestion. If you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic, and you probably are because you're in this room, and, and, and if not, you're very sad because obviously you should have something else to do on a Saturday night besides be here if you're not alcoholic. And, and so we, we have to get to that place where, where we're ready to admit and to change. You know, and if we're not willing to do the steps, again, if you think it's just a suggestion and you only want to leave it at suggestion, it's the best suggestion you will ever hear. But remember, the only alternative suggestion, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, right? So, and, and then I love at the end of the steps, it says, you know, we make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. You know, so as we go through those steps and we understand, because as we go through the steps, it's designed to increase my power with God as I understand God. That I give up power in step one that I really didn't have that was actually killing me, and I exchange it for power, for power in step 11, which actually not only gives me life, but helps me share my life with you. You know, and it's kind of like momentum. Newton's law of motion says that things that are at rest tend to stay at rest. Things that are in motion tend to stay in motion, right? And, 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 and I love science because it, it sort of solidifies spirituality. Because you can look anywhere in science and it'll define the spiritual relationship we have, we have with God. And so as we're going through the steps, do you, you ever feel more powerful? I tell people all the time, uh, a bus is going to have to kill me because I feel really bulletproof. You know, and I feel bulletproof not because of who I am, but because of what I've decided to do, right? And there's a big difference between that. And, and I've learned that, that I don't have this for any other reason other than God has allowed me to have the sobriety. And then when I get through steps eight and nine, and boy, do we have some amends to make, right? What's wonderful about step eight, it's only, it's not even an action step. We're just making a list of all persons we had harmed. And one thing I really like about step nine is we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I was really so relieved to hear that because I wasn't married very long to my second wife, so I didn't do as much damage, but my first wife, I really did some bad damage. I mean, I was, I was not a good guy. I was a terrible adulterer. I, I disregarded my family as if I never had one. And, and to, to have to share with her the specifics of that um, would have harmed her in a way that would not have been fair to her. You know, so even with that step, with the help of my sponsor, because we have to be very careful, we rationalize, we minimize, and we deny 
right? So we don't have to face the truth and who we are and what we become. And so I found a way to, to share my, my, uh, my regret and to share my concern of how I harmed her along the way. And then when we do that, and now we're into step 10, and if you understand the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, for by this time we have recovered. And when we do the steps accordingly, we do recover. I remember being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and people saying, well, you can't recover because you can't get cured and, 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 and all these terms. And I'm thinking, well, of course I can recover. Throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about I can recover. You know, I love the word control, right? Who doesn't like to be in control? And yet if I use the word control, you might say, well, you can't have control. Well, if that's the case, then I have to discount Dr. Bob Silkworth because he says I can control, right? The only requirement is being to follow a few simple rules. And if you don't believe me, look, and I think it's Roman numeral 26 or 28 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where it says, once, on the other hand, and as strange as that may seem, once a person who has seemed doomed, who resolved himself ever to control his desire for alcohol, um, and, he, and he goes on, what does he say here? Because I'm going to quote this. This is really powerful. He says, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. So to this day, I can now even control my desire for alcohol. I don't have a desire for alcohol. It says, if tempted, I'll recoil as if from a hot flame, right? And I don't know about you, but I like to be around the kitchen a lot. So I'm around stoves and pans and things like that. And I know if it gets too hot, I pull my hand back, right? Because I know how dangerous it is. I remember my step one because to the best of my ability, I've worked it to perfection, right? And so now every day I take a look at myself and I hope you do as well. I look forward to the night. I look forward to recounting my day. I look forward to the things that I can remember that I did well. I look forward to finding out the things that I didn't do well because I know how you respond to me when I go and I say I'm sorry. Because you know the depth of sincerity I have when I tell you that I'm sorry. And then when I do that and I wake up and I, and I go through the prayer and meditation with God and I take time every morning to make sure that I have that power because I want power. Don't you? We lived powerless for so long. I want to live in power, but not mine because I have no power. The power that I had got me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to learn and adopt someone else's power. And that one is God as I understand God. And then the joy that I feel, now I have a purpose and that's exercised in step 12. Now, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, wow, a spiritual awakening, right? I used to drown myself in alcohol, hoping that I wouldn't wake up because I didn't like how I felt when I woke up. Now, I've had a spiritual awakening, and now I have a purpose and a mandate to go carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. We never stop. I stay recovered because I stay in recovery. And that's one of the most beautiful things about Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it's, it's a journey, it's not a destination. I never arrive, right? I never arrive. Even my sponsor, Jack, when he was on his deathbed and I had a, a wonderful opportunity to spend the last three days with him, 
Actually, he had two more days. He died on my way home. But I remember sitting at his hospital bed, and I, and I said, Jack, what do you want me to tell him? Because as he's dying, he's passing his mantle to me. And he was an incredible man. He ran central office in Las Vegas for 15 years, and he was so involved in sobriety and recovery, and just a great example for me in terms of how to live out my sober life. And I, and I said, Jack, what do you want me to tell him? You know, and, and, I'm, and I'm Mr. Grandiosity. You ask me what time it is, and I just might tell you how to build a watch, right? That's, that's me. So I, I asked Jack, his, his thing was always keep it simple, sweetheart. So I'm waiting for him to deliver some grandiose message that I could tell you. So I said, Jack, what do you want me to tell him? And he looked at me with his cancer-sunken eyes, and he said, Bob, tell him it works. And I kissed him on the cheek. And I said goodbye, and that was the last time I saw him. But it works. Alcoholics Anonymous works. It works in ways that I don't even understand. I just know that it does. And I know that if I want to keep working, there are some simple rules that I need to do on a regular basis to make sure that I'm the best possible version of me so I can be the best possible version for you. And I'm going I'm to close with this. My most favorite page of the big book, and I try to read it every time I speak, it's page 17 from There is a Solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. All sections of this life, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us, but that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action this is the great news this book carries for those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert. I'm an alcoholic.